The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane. This week we speak to Lucy Ellman about her Booker shortlisted novel, Duck's Newburyport. A thousand pages of first-person stream of consciousness interspersed with brief updates on a mountain lioness. Plus, we take a look at some other novels often considered to be challenging reads. Lucy Ellman won the Guardian Fiction Prize in 1988 for her debut novel, Sweet Desserts. Her eighth novel, Duck's Newburyport, is a challenge to summarise. It's an encyclopedic stream of consciousness from the mind of a middle-aged woman in Ohio that's rich in associations and wordplay. She mulls over everything in her life from healthcare to cartwheels, gun control to sea urchins, her thoughts only interrupted by passages told from the perspective of a mountain lion. When Sean met Lucy recently, she began reading from the book. The fact that I just realized that when this monologue in my head finally stops, I'll be dead, or at least totally unconscious, like a vegetable or something. The fact that there are seven and a half billion people in the world, so there must be seven and a half billion of these internal monologues going on, apart from all the unconscious people. The fact that that's seven and a half billion people worrying about their kids or their moms or both, as well as taxes and windowsills and medical bills. Shut in, shut out, dug out, bullpen. The fact that that's not counting the multiple personality people who must have several internal monologues going on at once. Several each. Momologues, momola bomola, boobola, blogs, vlogs, log cabin, Phoebe's Christmas logs. The fact that animals must have some kind of monologue going on in their heads, too, even if it's more visual than verbal, maybe. The fact that bald eagles always seem to be thinking about something when you watch them on Eagle Cam. The fact that we have Lucy Ullman, author of Duck's New Report, on the Guardian Books podcast. Lucy, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I wanted to start with another thank you, actually, um, because Duck's New Report was the most invigorating reading experience that I can recall in recent years. And I am someone that is very cavalier about giving up on books, and I'm also someone that is easily daunted by big books. One of the first things I wrote for The Guardian, actually, was about how I'd given up on Ulysses about four times. <laughs> um, but from the get-go, I was enthralled by this yeah, frankly humongous book <laughs> and it took me two months to read I read it uh, in little installments on my commute every day uh, to and from work and I found since finishing it that people have consistently talked about it like it was an accomplishment for them to read it and finish it what was it like for you in writing it how did it differ from other books that you've written uh, this was absolutely exhausting <laughs> It didn't follow a, a direct course because it became a big jigsaw puzzle, really. Mm. And I had to keep uh, readjusting everything and trying to get it working as a sort of story. But the story's a bit underground. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I read that it took you about seven years of having no social life. Yeah. Well, I've never had much of a social life. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Quite extreme <laughs> isolation. Yeah. Mm. And do you, do you need isolation in order to write? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, everything interrupts concentration. Mm -hmm. Although I don't mind background noise. 
You don't. But, no, but if I have to go out of my room and speak to someone, that's an interruption. Mm -hmm. So I think ideally you're just uh, linked to tubes and things, and you don't have to ever get up from the chair. <laughs> And it, then it might have taken six months to write. I don't know. What was it? I read it was seven seven years of doing twelve to fourteen hour days, and it's sort of hard to think that you could have done much more than that. I think it, it wasn't quite that intense at the beginning. <laughs> Towards the end, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I guess that and that makes sense then in terms of the the process of writing it because it, you're right. The story is kind of underground. The story really is what it's like being in this narrator's mind and it's her thought processes and the the leaps and bounds that her mind makes from topic to topic is sort of the the trajectory for the reader how did you go about mapping that then were you using the own leaps and bounds that your own mind was making I used myself as a guinea pig to some extent yeah and I added more and more stuff that I wanted her to think about mm -hmm. but yeah the so sort of traits of the mind some of them I borrowed from me and the rest, of, yeah, I made up. Yeah, and it's got this this constant, this refrain of the fact that that goes throughout the book that sort of links all the main thoughts that she has. And then she goes, sometimes she goes into wordplay, sometimes she lists off brands, a jingle from an advert pops into her head, which are all things that our brains constantly do. But you're linking all these little ideas and thoughts that she has with the fact that. How did you come up with that refrain? Uh, that was there from the beginning as a way of creating suspense in a way. Because you never know how this sentence is going to end. And it also seemed sort of like a percussive element, a sort of pounding of the table feeling mm -hmm. about it, but also not just in anger. I think it's a sort of sad expression as well, the fact that it's kind of a weak expression in some ways. And it's what people say when they don't really have a fact to give you, but they start the sentence just like saying, to be frank. <laughs> and from there, you you don't know where you're going. Well, I like that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's been described as a monologue, but I was wondering whether that was actually kind of incorrect in a way, because the crucial part of the book is that this is everything that she's never going to say out loud, that these are all her most innermost thoughts. So it's not a soliloquy, exactly. Mm. Yes. But the internal monologue, I guess that's how people think of it. Is that not a monologue? I don't know. I, I suppose some of the most compelling parts is that she's often taken aback by the nature of her own thoughts, that she can make those leaps from cherry pies to gun violence, and occasionally she thinks of a, a rude word or a crude word, and she is taken aback by her own forthrightness. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so this our narrator is making leaps from things like toilet training to Howard Hughes and what her daughter's up to to white supremacy and there was a point when I was reading it where I felt that you had somehow conveyed human consciousness on the page in a way that I hadn't seen before and the interesting thing with Ducks New Report is that it mirrors what the brain does when the mind wanders and I realised that you'd sort of captured what my brain does uh, when I'm most conscious of what I'm thinking, which is when I'm meditating <laughs> and oh. I'm trying to stop thinking. And that's when I'm most aware of the leaps that I'm making. <laughs> uh -huh. And uh, when I realized that, suddenly when my mind would wander while I was 
reading it on occasion, it felt less bad. And I actually felt like I never lost my place because in turn, our narrator's mind is wandering as well. And so actually, I never felt lost. <laughs> so you could sort of swerve together yeah. in and out of it. Yeah, exactly. What was your See, relationship? I don't know what it's like to read it. It's have you not read it yourself? Yet. I have read it many times. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Have you did you did you see like mirrors between the ways that you thought and and she thought apart from using yourself as an inner big like you said? Well, yes, but what I was thinking of was in my first novel, I tried to convey how people are bombarded by stuff which is may or may not be relevant to them mm. all day, and some of this is an intrusion and some of it becomes part of you yeah so there's this weaving in and out that goes on that way well that's that's interesting like particularly with brand names brand names and jingles are a real thing those little sort of earworms that get stuck in the brain and it doesn't matter sort of how important or solid a thought you're having that they can still intrude and that's what we see in Duck's new report yeah I wanted to Get it all in. What you can't do is sights, sounds, smells too well. I mean, you can write them in words, mm. but what works best on the page is more the mental thought processes. I did read an interview with you where you said you quite fancied the idea of smell vision being <laughs> introduced <laughs> <Yeah>. to novels. <laughs> Just would be handy. <laughs> but I'd want a million different smells. I've often wanted to have a soundtrack, of course, to really? go with novels. To go with I think film. a lot of novelists want that. Some of them do do it. It's, yeah. it's interesting. But it's, it seems like another way to perhaps overwhelm the reader, sort of overwhelm all good, senses. Good, good. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you want? Sure. Yeah? <laughs> Why? I want world domination. What do you think? <laughs> well, on world domination, actually, this is a recurring thing that our narrator, she, she has an anxious mind. She's overwhelmed by the state of the world. She's in Ohio, but America looms large in her brain. And you could sort of say that it is a book about America, but it is obviously a book for anyone in the world because of the presence that America has in our collective mind, particularly right now. And it's interesting because she's such a, a mess of contradictions and so she's liberal in many ways and she's against gun violence. She's uh, worried about looming climate catastrophe. She's not a Trump fan at all. Trump comes up a lot of times in, the, in, in her thoughts. But she's also a cancer survivor and she's also glad to have not had Obamacare, for example. She's relieved, I guess. Yeah. She's suspicious that it wouldn't be very good. I don't know. Well, I don't think she approves of Obamacare as far as it goes. It's a very complex perspective that we have on America and it's interesting to have an American narrator that is similarly anxious and overwhelmed by her own nation. I think she's a decent person. Mm. I don't think she's particularly political. I don't think she's found a way to express her concerns or do anything about all these worries she has. Mm. But she's embryonically a socialist, I guess, <laughs> if that could exist in America. Mm. Motherhood is particularly important in this book. And she's a mother, and she's haunted by the death of her own mother. And there's obvious links between our narrator mother and also the, the mother mountain lion that appears at various little interludes in the book. The ways in which motherhood can leave a woman feeling erased or invisible or underappreciated and devalued 
I found it interesting. There's, there was a line where she says, I'm scared of all young women now because when I look at them, I see another potential mother hater. The fact that I always wonder now how they treat their own mums. And I'm a young woman, but uh, I obviously also live in a world where I'm quite overwhelmed, similarly to this Ohio mother, um, by the prospect of the future and for the environment and overpopulation and things. And I have decided not to have children, to not be a mother. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you very much. Well, I do find that interesting, though, that a mother could uh, perhaps find young women like myself that were making these, these choices scary and make them feel devalued. Yeah, I don't think she's so concerned about population growth or other people's decisions about fertility. She's worried about mothers being hated mm -hmm. by everybody. And I think she feels it when she drags her kids around the parking lot by the supermarket. And she feels it in the indifference of her husband's colleagues and in the larger society. Yeah, there's very little provision for mothers. And I, I don't think people should be mothers, but I think the mothers that exist probably deserve to be treated a little better. And that there's an en entire history of motherhood before contraception was ever very effective uh, that affects women's history from the beginning. And that's all discounted too when you discount mothers or you ignore what they are. And what they are in, in terms of mammalian life. It's just ridiculous to <laughs> fail to notice that they're incredibly important. Mm. And you said you don't think that, that people should be mothers. Why, why is that? Because of the population and because of the environment and because it's a real drag too. <laughs> a really tough job and very unrewarding, I think, in general. Mm. And well, that's like what we see with our the, the narrator is that she feels that she's sort of often picking up the slack where her husband leaves it and that her children don't appreciate all the work that she's doing to sort of maintain normalcy. But she doesn't appreciate them a lot either. Mm. A lot of the time she's just trying to ignore them herself. <laughs> I think it goes both ways, yeah. And I mean, looking back to books like Mimi, for example, your, one of your previous novels, what that did in terms of portrayal of menopause and women at that point in their life as well. I sort of get a sense that there is a, there's a real thread amongst your work about talking about the ways in which women are undervalued and the boxes that they are put in. Well, I've also always been concerned about female bodily functions and that they're not talked about enough and not understood. And as you can see with menstruation huts in Asia and things, and all kinds of religions have laws about menstruating women. Mm. Maybe it's a blessing for some to be uh, let out of the cooking for a while, but uh, essentially it's disrespectful. It's not appreciative. Uh, what is so bad about women's bodies? We ha constantly have to be embarrassed about them and reviled for them, while men go about their idiotic daily lives wrecking everything for everybody. So I'm really tired of it. <laughs> now, there's been a lot of a lot of comparisons of Ducks Newburyport to other books from everything from James Joyce to Fleabag was uh, mentioned in one review, which I guess must be because it's a monologue delivered by a woman. That's basically the, the strength of the connection there. The weird thing that I've seen in a lot of reviews is the Joyce connection and then everyone's saying because your father was a Joyce scholar, 
which seems, frankly, to me, a strange thing to bring up, particularly for a writer of your stature. And the fact also that your sister is a Joyce scholar as well, which is not mentioned. No, that's mentioned less. Mm. If it was mentioned more, I suppose I'd get even more trouble about why I'm not a Joyce scholar. <laughs> but I'm not. I never saw that comparison with Joyce in this. I, I saw perhaps bits of Miss Dalloway and Dina Wolf, but also um, the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy, which I oh, found out afterwards is a, a favorite of yours. Yes. You, where would we be without Stern? He's an important guy. And Joyce is too. But you know how comparisons are are made between these. Um, once I was chosen as a fellow reader for uh, this other woman who'd, who'd written a novel, and I asked how they'd made this uh, pairing, and I was told it was because we'd both written about men and women, and we'd both placed our novels in a city. <laughs> you That's can't good always <laughs> <laughs> You can't always get the comparisons you really want. No. And there's also been a strange debate among some critics. I haven't seen it among readers. I've been looking for reader reviews and things, and you know, everyone's had different experiences, of course, but there's always been this debate among critics about Duck's New Report, about people stipulating that they think it could have been 300 pages shorter or half the length or some sort of length that they felt it would work for them. But and This is the cut version. <laughs> yeah. How long was it originally? <laughs> <laughs> well, I could have put a lot more in. I read that you added 30,000 words to one draft when you're working with Galley Beggar. Yeah. And they didn't say anything. I think they fainted. <laughs> <laughs> They're very good about it. Well, what's 30,000 words? I mean, you've already got 400,000. What's the big deal? <laughs> are, are we sort of... I, I feel it's more this, for your money, too. <laughs> it's very good value for money. <laughs> are, we, are we sort of wrong to be daunted then by big books? Because it, it, it really has nothing to do with content, which is the point. And to be a reader like myself who is daunted by big books and then to have read this and had such a joyous experience with it, I feel like my world is, has gone topsy-turvy. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> well, I wanted to uh, you know, explore this form, and I let it take me where it would, in the novel form. I'm very tired of conventional approaches to that, mm. and I wanted to see what you could do if you don't automatically edit out every single thing. Maybe you go the other way. Actually, sort of looking back at all of your works, there has always been this... Uh, element of your works that's tended towards lists and perhaps slightly derogatory rants but you know interesting rants capital letters italics all these sort of things that perhaps people feel like they can't do that it's somehow beneath them to put in italics in their novels no matter what the reaction has been I've noticed that you've consistently kept all of those elements in your books which suggests perhaps you are a fairly uncompromising writer you, you know what you want and you're going to do it I'll use capital letters if I want to, yes. <laughs> but in this book, I didn't actually use many. Mm. It was a different kind of book. Mm. Uh, I don't think there are rules. A lot of people want to find out what the rules are, and I think they should be writing genre fiction because there are no real rules in a modernist approach to the novel. And that's why it's exciting. With Duck's New Report, have people been surprised about how easy it is to because that is something I do want to convey to everyone is that it is genuinely extremely readable. 
I think it's an experience, and if you don't want it, you shouldn't have it. But if you want to try out a weird fictional experience, then I, I think I recommend it highly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Lucy. Okay, thanks, Sean. Lucy Alman talking to Sean, and Duck's Newbury Port is published by Galley Beggar Press. You can hear whether Lucy Alman wins the Booker Prize on next week's podcast. After the break, we'll be back with a look at some of our favourite novels that are also considered to be difficult reads. The way things are isn't the way they have to be. But knowing what to challenge and how to change it isn't always clear. That's why independent journalism has never mattered more. When we are free to follow any lead and question any authority, we can confront the status quo, uncover vital alternatives and bring clarity to the world's most complex issues. We can help our readers understand the world. So together we can fight for a better one. Hope is power. And with your support, you'll always find it at The Guardian. Welcome back to The Guardian Books Podcast. Lucy Elman's Duck's Newburyport could be the most challenging read on this year's Booker shortlist, but there are many other books vying for the place of most challenging read. Which of them are worth the effort? As Sean mentioned in the interview earlier, Lucy is the daughter and sister of two James Joyce scholars. So perhaps Joyce is a good place to start. Sean, which have you read? No, I haven't read any Joyce. <laughs> Shame is, on you. Shame I, on you. I have tried many, many times to read Ulysses, and uh, I have basically always got to about page 46 and then just given up. You see, uh, I don't actually think Ulysses is that difficult. Why would I? But when, once you get into the humour, it's partly to do with the humour, um, and you begin to understand the scene setting, he creates this series of fantastic scenes like um, Leopold Bloom in the bath with his languid floating flower. And then at the end, Molly Bloom's soliloquy. It's, it's so rich and you just have to allow yourself to be swept away on it, which is sort of what you have. You said you've done very obviously done very successfully with Lucy. But this is the thing. I was like with Lucy, I never felt lost. I always felt that she was guiding me. That I always had a sort of grip on where this woman's mind was. Whereas with Ulysses, it's so overwhelming. I've just never been able to actually get a grip on what anyone's doing or saying in any scene. That by page forty-six, when I get there, I'm usually just so bored of it all (laughs) of constantly trying to keep track of where I am that I give up and I know that people love this book it's it's actually what's such a wonderful book in the the community that exists around it and the fact it inspired a day and people that love it really love it and I want to be part of that but I'm just not because I can't get past page 46. It's it's the one that always (laughs) comes up on the top of the most difficult books list isn't it? Very unfairly and I think it's only because Finnegan's Wake nobody's even tried. Yeah no Finnegan's (laughs) Wake's only number two because no one's read (laughs) Finnegan's Wake. Yes I think James Joyce does have that reputation and like people do actually come up with really nice strategies for tackling a book like Ulysses so for example a lot of people say to skip chapter three just cause I think you can just live without it perhaps um there's also people that have uh, said you should read it aloud which is something I've not tried I think just for the sheer length length of the damn thing I I think that is that's actually probably quite a good suggestion Mm. although you kind of have to have the way of speaking that Irish way of speaking um, I think I'm just going to be deeply offensive (laughs) if I start putting on an Irish accent while reading it so are you generally a fan of modernism and and Lucy is a, a modern day modernist yeah well I feel like Lucy makes me want to read more, but uh, I mean, so Virginia Woolf, I really like Virginia Woolf, but I've always struggled with Joyce. I've not been able to read Faulkner either. I think it's a similar sort of 
intelligent whimsy with language that sometimes I just don't have a very high tolerance for. If I feel lost in a sentence, I get very annoyed and not necessarily with myself, but the writer. I've been told off for my opinions about on the road on this podcast before, but it's the exact same problem. It's just, I feel like if I've lost my place, that's not necessarily my fault. I think that can sometimes be the fault of the writer as well. Yeah, although although there are as many different books as there are readers. Yes, exactly. There's people out there that <laughs> love There's a different the Ulysses road. in my house than there is in your unread <laughs> yeah, yeah. shelves. Um, the thing about modernism is it hasn't gone away and you've got all the, the new modernists. Um, mm. Obviously, Lucy's one of the most recent proponent of it in that this is her most recent novel. Mm. But also Will Self, who, mm. who is a difficult novelist I actually think he's a wonderful novelist. Yes. And um, things like The Book of Dave, about yeah. the idea of which is that a document is found which is was written by a cabbie called Dave sometime in the future. <laughs> it sort of becomes the new Bible. Yeah, and it's the sort of, it's a, again, it's one of those books that you absolutely have to go with. Mm. And if you go with it, and it also has a sort of, um, there's a continuity in his books that goes from novel to novel, which mm. when you really get into it it's like the great unceasing flow of will self <laughs> <laughs> i love the book of dave actually i read that um when i first started there's a there's a wonderful period if you ever work in a bookshop where you take advantage of your staff discount and you just start buying everything that looks vaguely interesting and book of dave was the first ever will self book that i ever read and um i, I still think back on it fondly but i think it is a very different beast to something like ulysses still you know there are i think there is always a book out there that just is like an, an Everest for some readers, you know, and um, Joyce remains that for me. Although it seems that Lucy's whole family are into Joyce because her, her father's a Joyce scholar, her sister's a Joyce scholar. So, you know, there are people that like the guy. One, one, <laughs> one of the things is length, isn't it? Mm. And and I think people are pretty daunted. I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, I have to admit, I've always been daunted by um, Moby Dick, which is one of the novels that sits on my shelves. Yes. Half read. Mm. Or Proust is the other one that everyone yes. always always mentions. You just say, how much of your life are you prepared to give up yes. to to surrendering yourself to the possibility of liking a book? Yeah. So I think there's like there's always a balance as a reader. You're sort of it's uh, uh, how much time can you dedicate and how much headspace can you dedicate? And there are books that require both. Um, and things like Proust, I've heard that you can have a deeply enjoyable experience and it can be life changing reading Proust. But I also see it as something that I would have to dedicate all of my attention to and possibly do you know at a time of perhaps on a sabbatical or like an extended break where all I did was read it and dedicated my mind to it because I don't think if you're going to tackle something like that you have to be getting the most out of it as well as a reader I've never tackled War and Peace which is another book that's uh, you know on all, all of the most difficult books list I've never never done War and Peace and I'll try I, it. start with Anna Karenina yeah Anna Karenina is is more um, forgiving I think yes um, I mean the, the thing about Tolstoy is he has those great big philosophical and sort of land reclamation rants yes there's a there's a there's a, a great Haruki Murakami short story where a woman discovers she no longer needs to sleep and the first thing she decides to do is that she's going to read Anna Karenina from cover to cover <laughs> and uh, she does it but I do remember reading Anna Karenina in when I had my very first journalistic job in in south wales and getting so wrapped up in it that i couldn't wait for my for my day to end <laughs> and i can rush home lie in my bed sit and read anna karenina and that's that's the that's the the great thing about big books i think people look at big books and they go oh it's too long and therefore it's going to be hard whereas if you're having an enjoyable experience with a long book there's nothing better because there's just more and more there to come back to mm. i think that actually it was probably that was probably the last time 
I really had that experience. You know mm. that that experience as an adolescent reader when you you're absolutely passionate about what you're reading. Yes, you have to keep coming back to things. It. I remember reading Gone with the Wind, another very long book, which mm. actually I tried to read to my my children <laughs> with my children, and it has de- as it has aged dated. well. <laughs> it's sort yeah. of pretty much unreadable now. But I, I remember having flu and for a whole weekend and being with just lying with my back against a radiator, reading mm. about Brett and Scarlet, and, mm. and thinking this is the peak of my life. I'm never going to be this happy again <laughs> in my feverish slightly hallucinatory way <laughs> I had a slightly like a, a similar experience with Middlemarch which was always one of those books that was I was told you, you know you will love this and I'm always resistant when anyone tells me I'm going to like something I'm going to just be difficult and be like yeah well we'll you know we'll see about that and then it, it turned out I loved Middlemarch as much as everyone told me I was going to but again daunting on the subject of length, like Lucy Elman has said before, because every interview that has been done with her in the lead up to the Booker Prize winner being announced has always made mention of the length, which is understandable. Um, and she makes the distinction between length and content. And I think that's the distinction that needs to be made with Doug's new report is that the content isn't hard. The amount of time that you have to dedicate to it is perhaps a difficulty for some people even just carrying the damn thing on a bus is sometimes is a bit of an ask as well. But in terms of like content, it's not necessarily hard. It's not confusing. And I think that's perhaps some of my resistance to Joyce is that I find him confusing, whereas some people might find him confusing and love being confused. It's yeah, an experience. You, you have know. to invest in it. Yes. But but once you've invested, it rewards that investment. Mm. And, you know, that that's one of the ways of reading a book. There are some some books you skim through, some books you, you, you know you have to give a bit more to. Yes. And I mean, I, I don't know whether I would have read Ulysses or if I hadn't have done it at university, but having done it, it is something I do go back to. Yes. Well, lots of the most difficult novelists you see, they're very blokey. And lots of the women that are mentioned as difficult, you see them on syllabus. And I wonder whether people have labelled them difficult because they have that school association that they did it at university or they did it in high school. You know, Toni Morrison, Virginia Woolf, uh, Emily Bronte. You know, I don't think Wuthering Heights is hard to read, but, you know, there she is at number 32 on... The, some the, some the list very of, bad English teacher ruined somebody's <laughs> yeah. ruined the Bronte for somebody. Yeah, yeah. So I think there is there is also a gendered element. I think that there is this also this idea of an intellectual writer, and I think that that, that tends to go towards male authors as opposed to to, to, to women. Authors. What do you mean that that's the intellectual content that that is difficult? Exactly. That there's there's the great experimental authors. You know, the Pinch and David Foster Wallace, for example, as two examples. You've got these writers who are difficult but they're held up as sort of aspirational reads that you know everyone should read yeah. infinite jest and stuff like that and i can't think of many women authors that are held up in that way in praise of their intellectual qualities of in praise of how difficult an experience it's going to be that's basically how infinite jest gets sold these days yeah. <laughs> is, it's, i mean i, I, I always think about about those two that they're sort of laboratory novelists aren't they it's, mm. it's sort of the the, no, the novelist that every aspiring literary novelist has to read yes but in a way they're not for the common folk like like us that's, I mean that's we, we did do a previous episode where three of us read Infinite Jest for the first time we all decided that we were going to do it we dedicated a couple months to do it and we all finished it and we did a, an episode of this podcast actually just sort of talking about our conclusions about it and all of us enjoyed it but 
all of us were slightly baffled as to why it had been so prescribed to us for so many years by so many people. There's, I mean, Infinite Jest is always the, it's now used as basically a flag for like, uh, if you're internet dating now and a guy says, oh, have you read Infinite Jest? It's like an immediate red flag, get out of there because he's got pretensions about his own intellectual abilities. But yeah, we were all pleasantly surprised, but also slightly baffled as to the significance that it has. And I think part of the significance that it has is that it is long. On the subject of length and off the back of talking about Proust before, Carl Ove Nasgard and uh, the My Struggle books. You love him, don't you? Yeah, it's not difficult. (laughs) And the end is he sort of surpasses himself in terms of length. It's something like 1,200 pages. I mean, to be honest, I think you can miss out the middle section, which is his musings on Hitler, because I think more invested people have have written about Hitler. And I think that claims of him being the new Proust are are frankly ridiculous. But he is the new Nausgaard. <laughs> that is the new Nausgaard. He is Nausgaard. And, you know, that attentiveness to everyday life. You know, and he he's, can be very funny. Is a, a That's a quality that people don't talk about. There's this huge riff, wonderful riff on trying to sell his summer house. But in order to do so, he has to get rid of the, this pail of slops, which they used before they had plumbing in this in this little summer house which he, he then finds that he can conveniently pull them under the floorboards not realizing that actually the floorboards are sort of squishing squelching around on a 15 years of of excrement <laughs> and how many hundreds well, of pages has dedicated quite a lot <laughs> quite a lot and we i had i did this fascinating session with him in which at the end of the session it wasn't my question it was a clever person in the audience who said um did you have to cut any of it he said yeah yeah, he had to cut about 400 pages his publisher said you can't have a novel that's a book that's that long so someone said well what did you cut and he said well it was mostly about my digestion and when i was cycling back on my bike i realized that absolutely i wanted to read those 400 pages <laughs> because he also talks about james joyce there's quite a lot on james joyce and leopold bloom and leopold bloom Part of his day is his digestive tract, going stuff going from the top to the bottom of his digestive tract. Then you have the bit in the summer house. And what links it, obviously, was the intestinal action of, of, of <laughs> Karl Ovik Mausgaard through a whole day. You know, I just thought, I can't bring it on. I could have read those could extra three, extra it. 400 pages. And I, I sort of quite surprised myself. But, um, you know, but then I thought I remain, in spite of the length, a bit of a fan, mm. even if I might advise people to miss out the middle section. Mm. Does that matter does that mean it's a lesser book that you can miss some of it no i think that's about how one reads and often that is how one comes to terms with books that one finds challenging so i shouldn't feel bad about ulysses and i should skip well you should read more than 41 pages before you come (laughs) to judgment thank you very much i'll (laughs) skip chapter three and i'll read it out loud (laughs) and see if i can do it. go straight to molly bloom's soliloquy and work backwards (laughs) okay (laughs) anyway we've probably enraged enough people for now (laughs) So we're going to call a halt to this week's episode. Next week, we'll be discussing who has won this year's Booker Prize. And we'll be joined by Hazel Carby and Amelia Gentleman to look at the stories of the Windrush generation and beyond. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane. And our producer, Ian Chambers. Goodbye and thanks for listening. great podcasts from the guardian just go to theguardian.com/podcasts